Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 252. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. What's up, brother Matt? How's it going? Hey, how you doing, Steve? Glad to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Always glad to have you, buddy. Anything exciting since the last time we had you on here? I mean, I I know it's kind of hard to just ask, hey, what's new? Because we talk all the time offline, of course, but... It's been a while since you've actually been on the pod here. Any big developments since then? Just came back from Las Vegas Jiu-Jitsu Con a couple weeks ago and getting ready for a match that I have with one of my buddies, Lucas Wilhan, on October 7th. Then I'm doing the East Coast Trials in Atlantic City the week after. And yeah, just getting ready for that. It's actually unfortunate. The other night, it was it must have been on Wednesday, three nights ago, I actually popped my knee kind of bad. I sprained my MCL or what we think is my MCL. I'm seeing a professional on Monday and yeah, it's kind of sucks getting ready for a super fight and then a competition the week after. And, you know, totally will obviously affect my camp and my preparation, but I've competed for so long now that I kind of, I know what I'm capable of, even if I don't have a good preparation and I'm going to try and build my preparation, obviously around this injury. I'm hoping that it will be okay in time. It doesn't seem like too bad of an injury, but that's kind of been on my plate Lee, as I'm getting ready. And actually, oddly enough, I popped my MCL. And then that evening I went out and played a hockey game <laughs> and scored a goal. It's pretty stupid of me. I thought, oh, I'm just going to go do the warm up and sort of see how I feel. And then I decided to just stay. <laughs> and it was, it didn't feel good, but uh, it's honestly been feeling better every day. So I feel like I'm probably pretty lucky that it wasn't like a torn ACL or a torn meniscus. And uh, hopefully when I see my physio on Monday and they do an assessment, the extent of the damage will not be that crazy and I'll be able to still do my matches in, in about a month's time. So yeah, that's what's new with me, you know, just dealing with injuries and having fun like that. Man, lower body injuries always scare me because yeah, sometimes you get injured and it feels okay out of the gate. This is something that I had to learn when I started jujitsu is if you feel something pop, but you still feel okay, you got to be careful because it might feel like "Ah, I can just get through the rest of this class. But then the next day you realize, holy moly, there's a, a big problem here, especially with ligaments and stuff, right? Sometimes you don't feel it right at the moment. Yeah. The next morning after the hockey game, I'm not going to lie. It was very sore, but even in 48 hours, it's really, really improved. So I think I kind of I kind of got away with one there. I was wrestling up from a dogfight situation. I was training with my buddy Naveed, who is, uh, I believe he got bronze at the world championships in freestyle wrestling. He's an MMA fighter. He's like freakishly strong. He's about my size and wrestling up on a guy like that is very, very difficult, obviously. And he kind of sprawled out and my leg was kind of in the wrong position. 
and there was a pop. Um, and right away, all the thoughts rushed through your head. You're like, Oh God, I felt a pop. I just sort of like lied there. And I was, and I was like, is it bad? Like I'm trying to make an assessment. You know, of course you're in shock and the feelings rushing through your head. You're like, what if it's the meniscus again? What if I just tore my ACL? So I kind of wiggled it around and moved around and it doesn't buckle. It doesn't feel, it's not locking. And another indication that I think the cartilage, I'm hoping the cartilage is okay, is that the Baker cyst behind my knee isn't swollen. And usually if there's any cartilage damage, the ba- uh, if you have, for those of listeners who have a Baker cyst, it's usually caused by damage to the cartilage. The sack of fluid kind of builds up behind your knee and then it can be very, very annoying. And I have one there that's just always there. And most of the time it's pretty small, but if I hurt my cartilage, then it kind of fills up with fluid. And uh, it hasn't filled up. So I think that that's a good indication that the more than likely the meniscus is okay and it's just a MCL sprain. But I think in terms of, you know, damaging the ligaments in your knee, MCL is one of the, it's one of the more forgiving injuries that you can have. So I'm hoping in a couple of weeks, I'll be good to go. I can still drill. I can, you know, I was drilling wrestling and footwork and Toriando passes and stuff last night. I can do squats and things. So I think the damage is actually pretty minimal. But man, when you get a pop in training like that, you just thoughts start going through your head, especially if you've had previous meniscus injuries or previous knee injuries, (laughs) it's almost like you kind of go into a state of shock and you're just reassessing your life choices and you're like, fuck, what the hell, you know, is this happening to me again? So I think I kind of dodged a bullet, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, that would actually make a great topic for an episode at some point, just the psychology of injury recovery, because the problem that happens a lot of the time with injuries is even if you're able to physically recover, mentally recovering and learning to trust that joint or that bone or whatever broke again and getting back to the point where you use it as confidently as you do before. That's actually maybe the harder part of injury recovery in some cases. So uh, that would actually be a fun conversation to have at some point, just the psychology around that. But yeah, man, sucks to hear. Hope you do get better soon. I mean, if not, you can do like one legged jujitsu, just adopt your game. No big. Yeah, exactly. And just tape the shit out of it and go in there. I've actually talked about injuries on uh, on the Essential Jiu-Jitsu podcast before and how I sort of try to overcome it. And like you said, when you come back from an injury like a, a meniscus repair or an ACL replacement, of course, there are those mental hurdles that you have to go over to begin to trust the joint again and do the things that you did before. And there is definitely a period where you're babying it and you really have to try and test it after a certain amount of time. I would say For those people who have an, let's use the knee injury as an example, someone who has like an ACL replacement or a meniscus uh, repair, you know, a surgery where it's like your layoff is going to be anywhere between nine to 14 months time. My biggest recommendation that I can see that's valuable is take your physio seriously, see a really good physiotherapist and make sure you don't rush back into training because After I got my meniscus repaired, my knee felt great after about three months. It started feeling really good. It started feeling like I could get back to training. And I was telling my physio this and he's like, with all your assessments, you are way ahead of schedule. However, don't fuck with biology because just because you feel good doesn't mean that the cells and the meniscus has had time to fuse. This is just literally just not having pain in your knee does not equate to that does not equate to you being able to return to training yet. So just trust the healing process and just let, you know, take your time. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing, right? Sometimes you feel better, but the absence of pain does not mean you're fully recovered. Mistake a lot of people make is 
when they're doing any sort of recovery, especially health related, when they start feeling better, they think, ah, well, I guess that's good enough. And they just abandon their rehab routine. That's not a good thing to do. You definitely want to finish that out and give the joint time to get stronger again. And also to give yourself time to get confident to use that joint again. Well, Matt, let's get into the topic today. We were discussing different things that we could approach here. I know that a hot topic in the industry right now is ecological training. Probably we don't need to revive that. I know that both on your show and on mine, we've talked about that just ad nauseum. But something we can talk about, which is maybe related, is drilling methods. Just what good drilling looks like, if there really is one true answer for how you should drill for best results or if it changes. And of course, because everyone's talking about eco right now, you know, we can maybe explain a little bit about how that fits into the equation, although I I don't think it needs to be the full topic of things. But with that said, man, why don't you kick it off? Tell me what drilling looks like at uh, your academy, what you do and what your thoughts are on kind of maybe the best or the or the worst ways to go about the practice. Well, I don't know much about drilling, but all I know is that it needs to be done against zero resistance. (laughs) (laughs) all the eco guys are just creaming up in their pants right now listening to us talk about that's not the best way to train you need resistance all the time and all god anyways drilling everyone has different philosophies on drilling methods and should you drill should you not drill of course if you listen to greg he's been on my show a couple times or he is going to be on it a second time pretty quickly. The episode will be released in about a week or two. And he's been on your show. I don't know how many times everyone has now heard of this constraint led approach or the ecological approach. And of course, I guess we have to kind of get into that. If you're not sick of hearing about it, you know, this is another conversation that will include it, obviously. And really the age old debate is like, should we be drilling? Is it valid at all to be doing static drilling or drilling against non-resistance or should everything be against resistance now? You know, is there validity with static drilling when it comes to skill acquisition and transfer of uh, skill? Is that a viable way to do it? And everyone has different philosophies. If you talk to Greg in his camp, they're going to say, you know, it's a waste of time and that it should all be ecological based. I've put ecological approach into my academy pedagogy for at least three whole months. And again, I know the eco guys are going to be like, but that's not even that's not enough time to even really give it a chance, right? It's like, you know, three months is a long time. When you're doing every class, you know, is games-based training. First of all, it's fucking exhausting. It's really hard on the body to do this every day. I know you have to find a pace that will allow you to do that, but you can't be constantly just doing, I mean, in my opinion, to be doing constraint-led training the entire class and then roll after. I mean, we're talking an hour of gamified training with resistance And then an hour of sparring on top of any other training that you might have. I found it difficult to let my body recover. And I'm a pretty seasoned competitor. I had a couple of recreational guys at the gym that were not really too happy with it. After a couple of months, they really wanted to learn techniques and they wanted to, they wanted to have that kind of traditional approach where we would be trying techniques, at least with non-resistance for a portion of the class, and then find that balance where the other portion of the class was ecological based or constraint led. I feel that there is a healthy balance between, you know, traditional methods of training, whether it be static drilling or positional sparring, whatever you want to call it, and constraint led approach. To say that just one way or just the other way is the only way or the best way, I think has yet to be seen. And I think it could be 
somewhat short-sighted. But again, that's just my professional opinion. And I know the ecological guys are going to disagree, but that's my opinion. Bring it, nerds. Yeah, Totally nerds, you know, (laughs) totally people who probably don't run schools. Maybe some of them do, but a lot of them tend to just, they see something new and they think that it's the best way. Like I've been in jujitsu now for about 15 years and I couldn't tell you how many times coming up through the ranks, I learned something and I thought it was the only way or the best way. And then I got contradicted so many times that I just, I realized that that is kind of, it's not a fruitful mindset, right? Like to think, oh, this would never work in this scenario or this is the best way to do something. And then you see something that contradicts that belief. That happens to you enough times. And then you start to think, okay, well, maybe I've been wrong about a lot of stuff. And maybe it's better to just kind of appreciate things that are effective when you see it and adopt it when it is effective and not be so tied to them that you feel like this is the only way. Like when we start using the ecological approach, I think a bunch of my students thought that this was going to be the only way things are from now on. We're only going to do eco approach. But I said at the beginning, I was like, guys, I just want to do like a trial run, like an experiment. Like I want to immerse our students in this pedagogy for three months and see the results. And there were a lot of great results. There were a lot of people who really enjoyed it. And then there were more recreational people who didn't enjoy it as much. Another thing about using constraints, a constraint-led approach and interleaving different material over time, as opposed to chunking modules as blocks is that it's the learning is not as it's not as perceivably measurable for the practitioner. They can't really tell if their practice performance is improving. And I think that did frustrate some people. They were like, oh, I'm not learning anything because I'm not really showing techniques. We are positionally sparring with constraints. That is essentially what it is. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like I could measure my improvement in so many different situations. Like we sparred the fuck out of half guard control cross-face and underhook positions, transitioning different half-guard control upper body positions and things like that. Like my my cross-face immeasurably improved. It got way better. I could notice improvements. Same thing with like my mount control, mount escapes. You know, positionally, I feel like I really benefited. But that being said, jiu-jitsu is my life and I, I can very well measure my own improvement. Whereas a blue belt who's very recreational probably can't perceive their own improvement. Maybe there weren't improvements. That's also possible too. So it was kind of mixed results. But in the end, I think to say that ecological approach isn't effective or doesn't have a viable place in any training program is very, very ignorant. I think it's a a very, very important part of training. Maybe a good thing to do here is to kind of just outline what the different ways are that drilling can be done, just to give context to people who maybe haven't heard the stuff before. I mean, historically speaking, you talked about the quote unquote old way of doing things. This is basically the old school Hollywood martial arts approach where you just practice the same thing 10,000 times, right? Kind of a what we would call dead drilling in jiu-jitsu, just practicing against a non-resisting opponent or even an inanimate object in some in some places. You can also upgrade that and practice against someone with a bit of resistance where at the end of the day, you might still be just practicing a specific technique, however. But there's been a lot of pushback against that approach, and understandably so. It can be frustrating to drill that way. You also wind up kind of going down these dead ends where maybe you're drilling something that just doesn't really fit into your game. You don't know the context of how to apply it to other stuff that you're doing. Another common problem, too, is when you use that approach, people often forget what they were taught because when you use something in a dead drill or in a positional situation, the way that you do it might wind up being a bit different than you do it in a live role. 
So the problem with dead drilling that happens a lot of the time is people will try to bust out this move. When their partner is just sitting there doing nothing, they can make it happen. But as soon as there's resistance, it just falls apart. Um, so there's been pushback against those kinds of traditional drilling methods for quite some time. And on the jujitsu scene in the last while, there's been this big explosion of interest in what's called the ecological approach. Basically, the idea here with the ecological approach, it, it comes from, you know, sports science. And the idea is that rather than telling someone exactly what to do and expecting them to just copy it and duplicate it exactly, you are basically trying to guide their body down the path of figuring it out on their own in the way that works best for them. The idea here is that no technique is ever done the same way twice. You can't just teach me the exact steps to do an arm bar the way that you do it because your body is different from my body, right? It's not going to be exactly the same. And on top of that, it's so dependent on what your opponent does, right? If your arm bar setup requires you to grab their far arm in a certain way and they don't give you that energy, you have to adapt. And so the idea behind ecology is rather than just telling people exactly what to do and expecting them to just download it into their brain, they you're leveraging the way that the body learns to try to kind of help people piece together a system that works on their own. So it, it's kind of like Socratic learning in a lot of ways, where rather than just spoon feeding someone an answer, you give them kind of guidelines that help them arrive at the answer on their own, except instead of talking about thinking and uh, philosophy here, we're talking about how to execute moves and sequences in jujitsu. And I mean, ecological dynamics are not some new thing. They're used in other sports. So it's just the jujitsu people have recently discovered it and maybe we're a bit behind the curve. And arguably, some people are maybe overly enthusiastic about what exactly those mean. But Matt, would you say that's kind of a, a fair primer for what ecological dynamics is? Or did I miss or misrepresent anything? I mean, I think that's fair. But I've noticed that these ecological guys are very picky about their explanations like if you i've tried to kind of explain to greg and and other people we're talking about greg souders by the way just for yeah. people who don't know from standard jiu-jitsu he's probably the most known advocate in jiu-jitsu of the ecological approach at the moment yeah and i've tried to kind of explain my interpretation of it and it's usually never up to par <laughs> for their standards so it's kind of one of those like oh you just don't understand you don't understand the science you don't understand the you haven't done the reading and whatnot and it's like well I've read a couple books on the topic like I've, I've done my best I have tried to learn and I feel like I have a good understanding of it but I'm just not sold that it's the only way or that just pure ecological is the best way. I think to some degree that explaining techniques and using alternative methods to training can still benefit the athlete and that pure ecological isn't necessarily the best way. Now, that being said, you know, if we're going to spar the saddle position or the mount position or the half guard pinning position, using the ecological method is, I think, probably the best way to make you better at that position. But without a sense of direction or without techniques, in my opinion, that can accelerate the athlete's growth. I mean, you could have students that repeat the same mistakes and they never get corrected, right? And this is kind of the, the normie criticism of the ecological approach is what I just told you. Anyone who criticizes the ecological approach is probably going to tell you what I just said. But if you talk to Greg, he'll tell you, and again, maybe I shouldn't say that because I don't want to put words in the guy's mouth, but he'll probably tell you static drilling, solo drilling, explaining or giving like spoon feeding information to the student has no transfer of uh, skill acquisition to the athlete. 
And I mean, tell that to a guy like John Danaher, who has not been using the ecological as his full method of training. Of course, he's done situational sparring and things like that. But he is very much into transferring information and transferring techniques to his students. Now, I spoke with Greg the other day. He said, you know, you can't teach a technique. There is no such thing as a technique because a technique is literally never the same. There's never the same technique. And then I said, well, yeah, you're right. You know, you're going against someone who's different from who you drilled it on. They have different dimensions. They're slightly sweatier. They're wearing a long sleeve rash guard instead of going shirtless, etc. There's so many variables. Maybe the elbow is open a couple of degrees more than when you drilled it. These are all true things. These are all infinite variables that can occur in a live situation that does, in a sense, the technique is not the same as how you drilled it. Now, that being said, I believe that drilling a technique or trying it even against minimal resistance, you can still reliably recreate that scenario and potentially find the same solution, even though the factors make it so that no arm bar is ever the same or no heel hook is ever the same. So for me, it doesn't really matter if it's never the same. What matters is, can I still reliably repeat that same solution against resistance? And quite often I can, right? If I get into the saddle against someone and I have both of their legs, there's a good chance I can finish it. If I have my partner in a Jujigatame and you know I've been there a million times, I can reliably finish it. If I get someone in a cross face and underhook position and half guard, a lot of the time I can pass them. I can repeat the situation even though the variables are different. But that being said, there's total validity in the ecological approach in that when you're putting yourself against resistance constantly, you're better suited to adapt to these variables. I don't think you can argue against that personally. But I'm saying, is there validity in drilling against no resistance or minimal resistance? So just to go on my sort of philosophy on drills and different types of drills, you know, there's solo type drills, there's warm up drills where you, you know, (laughs) there's a gym in my area that I troll them on social media quite a bit. They're always posting about how, oh, we have the best warm-ups ever. And they're doing like fireman's carry, running your partner down the mat. Then they're doing these like burpees and they're basically just making their students dog tired, but they're not learning actual jujitsu. They're not problem solving. They're just going through this intense warm-up. And so I always troll this school and repost their shit just to, <laughs> just as a joke because I'm a piece of shit. But uh, those types of warm-ups, I think, you know, they're great if you're trying to improve your strength and conditioning. They're not great for problem solving or skill acquisition in jujitsu. Solo movements, however, I had a very interesting discussion with Greg about solo movements, because obviously he thinks solo movements are, they can help you with your mobility and things like that. But in terms of building the skills for jujitsu, he was very much against it. And then I countered with, well, I, you know, one of the main things I've been studying right now is I've been studying Tyne and Dalpra's long step pass series and getting a lot of great insight on that pass because this guy long steps the best in the world, world champion, black belt, one of the best long step passers in the world, arguably the best gi passer in the world, you know, aside from maybe like a Nicholas Mirigali. And uh, and this guy's just incredible. In his instructional, he goes over a section on solo drills. And he says, before I started doing the solo drills, I would have issues finishing the long step pass. I would have issue, I would get 90% of the way to the pass and then I would have issues finishing it. But once Gi Mendez introduced the solo drills, it really helped him pick up the movement. And so I did the same thing. I was using the long step or what I perceived to be the long step. It was actually the back step pass, which is different. It's kind of the it's kind of the earlier unrefined version of the long step pass is this back step pass, you know, where you, you kind of flop your ass on the floor and you do a big dynamic 
uh, back step and your foot slams on the floor. Now the long step pass that these guys are using from AOJ is very much more of like a smooth gliding pass where instead of your foot smacking on the floor, it's kind of your toe is kind of dragging in a circle. And so it's very much smooth and it's much more effective, I find. So I started using these solo drills that he shows where you're just, you're essentially just in a low, low crouch and you're shifting your weight from side to side. And then you can use your body to create this crescent shape and fall away from your imaginary partner. And I started doing it and doing the mobility drills a couple minutes every day. And man, like to say that that didn't help my long step pass would be a lie. And then I started doing it with my students, kids, adults, of all levels, fundamentals, adults, advanced adults, I make them do the solo movement and like they're all hitting long step passes now. So I totally think that there could be validity to training outside of the ecological approach, like a solo drill, as long as it is, you know, as long as it's well thought of and it's well composed. Again, I don't think doing just any solo movement is good. I don't. And quite honestly, a lot of the solo movements I see most traditional gyms do are, in my opinion, not correct or not efficient. But I do think there's validity, especially when you got a guy like Tynan Dalper saying, hey, this drill made me hit the long step so much easier because my brain already, I don't need to think about it. When I go to the position that I can long step from, it's automatic. And I do think that there is validity to that. But again, if you were to tell, it, when I asked Greg about that, he said, is that the reason why he's so good at the long step? Or is it because he's extremely dedicated? He has the best coaches. He loves jujitsu. He wants to get better. Or could those be factors? And I said, well, yeah, absolutely. Those could be factors. But you're going to tell one of the best guys from one of the best teams in the world that his training methodology isn't effective when we can see that it yields world championship results at the black belt level. I mean, it's kind of, in my opinion, it is hard to argue against. Yeah. Yeah. I think that something that I've observed just in general, this doesn't even have anything to do with the ecological approach or how people drill. People really like to think, or they want to think that answers to complicated questions should be simple. They want yes or no answers, right? They want to know, is the ecological approach better? Yes or no. Should I use it? Yes or no. The reality, though, is that it's a lot more nuanced than that. I would argue that the way that people should probably think of the ecological approach is less as a new method that replaces the old and more just an understanding of body mechanics and psychology and how human beings learn. You don't have to follow a playbook exactly to be quote unquote ecological, but if you understand some of the concepts from the ecological approach, you know, you talked about constraints-based learning, for example, you can apply these in bits and pieces to other approaches as well and to the traditional approach. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. You can just do what you're doing, but just do it through the lens of an understanding of ecology. So, for example, if we know that people are going to learn better or retain better if they've got variability in their training and a degree of resistance, then we can do old school drilling but just apply a bit of that understanding, right? It doesn't have to be against a completely dead opponent who's just not doing anything. You can add layers of resistance. And I know ecological people hate it when you say this, but, you know, positional sparring is a lightweight example of thinking in that direction. Ecological people will often insist that positional sparring is not ecological. I mean, but the concept is kind of the same, right? You are applying a degree of constraints. It's not as nuanced or as deep as being fully ecological, but that you're kind of taking a step in that direction. So it doesn't have to be all or nothing. 
you can kind of pick and choose. Rather than thinking of ecology as the way things must be done, thinking of it as a collection of concepts that explain how the human body learns and improves, then if you think of it that way, it's just lessons that you can apply to other things. And then I think it becomes a bit less tribal and a bit less combative when people talk about this stuff. Man, I can just hear the ecological uh, nerds' heads exploding right now with what you're saying. <laughs> is, well, do you agree with me though? Am I am I right or am I going to be so pissed off? They're going to leave mad comments in the comment section. Oh my god, what are we going to do? I find a lot of the ecological guys are very purist. Like they feel it's weird. It is. I'm not going to call it a cult because I believe that these people are, their cult is that they want to find the best way to learn jujitsu. And I can get behind that. That is, you know, I don't think they're lying. I think that they, they just, they really believe in this method and they think it's the best way. And that's fine. I think we're all on the path of that method, especially if we are teachers and we're trying to find, okay, well, what's the best way we can accelerate learning? That's our cult is how can we accelerate learning the best? But I do think that sometimes it becomes a closed-minded conversation and one side is looking for answers and the other side feels that they've already found the best answer. I go back and forth. I think it's all about balance. I don't think you can train ecological every day. I think there's times when you'll see a new technique in competition that we've never seen before and then we're like, well, now we got to add this to our game or we got to learn how to shut this down. I mean, a week ago, we saw Craig Jones do a toe hold on Boogeyman through his legs, Michael Jordan style, wearing the Chicago Bulls team rash guard at the quintet tournament. This is a move I've never even seen. I can't believe it was done. A toe hold through the legs. Like, so you see something completely novel and you're going to tell me that we shouldn't talk about it or we shouldn't transfer the information verbally and that you're going to tell me that me showing a solution to a potential problem, even on a mechanical level, that can't transfer skill because now the athlete knows about it, but they haven't done it with their body. Like, I mean, listen, I'm the kind of guy who needs to do things physically to be able to use them in a live situation. Like once I feel a move, I have a much better understanding of the move than if I just look at it. That's fair. Okay. But to say that talking about it or verbally transferring information is not valid at all. I find it hard to believe. I do. I don't think it's the only way you should learn. That's again, becoming myopic on the other side of the spectrum where no, we should only be showing techniques. Like I don't believe that either. I think that that's not a good way to learn. I think there needs to be a mixture of both. And I feel that, you know, let's say I'm learning a technique for the first time. Usually the first time I learn something and I'm being introduced to a technique, usually I want to perform that task on a non-resisting opponent. Maybe it's an inversion into a backside 50-50 as a transition into X legs, into a Mikey lock. Like, you know what I mean? Like if it's a move that is very, very difficult, then yeah, I'm going to want to feel it. I'm not just going to go into a position and try and get it or try and organize myself around it. I want to feel it versus no resistance. Then once I understand it, just like you said, gradually increase resistance. And then eventually you're essentially just playing games. So I look at the ecological approach as a great way to kind of hammer out positions that you're already aware of. And I look at technique-based training or transferring information. I don't even know what we're going to call it. Traditional-based training using that as a way to kind of show the athlete what you can do and what kind of things that are available and what mistakes to look out for and what things to look for. But then in terms of battle testing and hardening that skill and making it a really sharp skill, of course, the ecological approach is, you know, I don't know if it's even debatable that that's not the best way to 
refine a skill because at the end of the day, refining a skill versus resistance is the best way, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that people who want to argue that the ecological approach doesn't work are arguing a very losing argument, right? I mean, the ecological approach, really, it's not so much a prescription of things that you must or mustn't do. It's a series of findings about how the human body learns to move. If you want to argue against that, you got to understand you're not arguing against Greg Souders necessarily. You're arguing against a significant body of research that shows that we believe that this is how the human body learns optimally at the moment. This is how it works. Now, that doesn't mean you need to take this to some totally zealous level where you're basically doing a 100% ecological approach at your gym and you're not explaining anything, right? There is no rule saying you have to go that far. You can rather just adopt the findings of an ecological approach. So for example, that people learn well with constraints, they learn well with variability. You can adopt all of those into a more traditional training model and meet in the middle. And I agree with you that there absolutely is a place for just technique-based instruction. From my experience, I mean, look, I'll be honest, right? Where I train, where I've always trained, pretty much every gym that I've trained at has used what I would call the traditional method. You know, the three moves a day type thing, right? Where you go in and you do some warm up, which may or may not be relevant. And then you mimic the instructor doing two, three techniques against an unresisting opponent. And then you do sparring. And if you're lucky, maybe you get some positional sparring. But it's a very old school method of structuring a class. And I'll be honest, 99% of the stuff that I have learned that way, just in one year, out the other, because it just never gets adopted. It never gets ingrained. And there are times when we've done more ecological classes where rather than trying to learn a technique, we just spar with the goal of holding a position, for example. And I have found that I have learned way better in certain situations by doing that. So again, I I think there's very, it's a very hard argument to make that the ecological approach doesn't work or that is bad. It's not an argument. You can't argue against it really. Yeah. Yeah. When people in jujitsu say things like the ecological approach doesn't work, you have to understand what you're arguing is not that Greg Souders is wrong. What you're arguing is that the findings of sports science for the past, how many decades are completely wrong. And that's a hard thing to argue. Now that said, ecological people tend to get, I think, a bit too excited and religious in their approach to applying it. Yes, it is true that no technique has done the same twice, right? There's so much variability in how our bodies move. We are not computer programs where we can just execute the same thing perfectly over and over again. And if you've ever done computer programming, you know how easy it is to fuck up a computer program, right? One deviation in the instructions and the entire thing just falls apart. Human beings, you know, we don't learn that way. You can't just download knowledge into someone's head. That's all fair. That's all totally understandable. But while the old school approach may not transfer skill, I think it does transfer understanding. And that's very important. If you don't even know what an omoplata is. And I just throw you in there and try to give you some games and they're intended to steer you towards developing a good omoplata. I mean, yeah, you might be able to have some good luck. You'll probably get a lot of good practice in that position, but I still think it would be helpful to spend a few seconds just demoing an omoplata, showing people what it is and what the destination is there. And at least then we've got a shared vocabulary, right? I remember when I was a white belt, the first time I saw that technique, it just blew my mind. I could not get my head around it. And it took me a while to just understand what it was and what the goal was. 
before we even talk about the separate conversation of how to get better at it. So I think there is a place for the old school monkey see, monkey do method, because even if it won't teach you how to do the technique best, it creates a shared vocabulary and understanding of what the goals are and where we're trying to go. And it's really hard to teach anyone if they don't know what the goals are and where you're trying to go. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, I did a recent, on my show, I did a recent series on the history of BJJ. And it started with, you know, of course, Japanese jujitsu and how that transferred into judo. And then judo was kind of defeated by Nawaza style Japanese jujitsu. And then that migrated over to Brazil and became Brazilian jujitsu. And so we're seeing what we really saw, the difference between the early days of Japanese jujitsu and then how that evolved into what we know as judo, which is primarily a throwing sport, is the the training methodology that Jigoro Kano developed, which was based around randori. So with more of a randori focus, a live training focus where there's always resistance, as opposed to a Japanese jiu-jitsu style of training, which was mostly based around kata, which is a choreographed, cooperative, partnered training. When something is not being tested against resistance, it just cannot be refined. There just aren't enough. There isn't enough adaptability because the person is not resisting and the person is told how to respond or uke is told how to respond to the techniques. And so there's no real need to problem solve. So how do we know that this method is going to work against someone who doesn't want this technique to happen to them, right? And then that's where Jigoro Kano realized, okay, if I can shift our focus to safer techniques that can be trained day in, day out, and I primarily focus our training around, I primarily focus the training around randori or live training, that's where we can really start to accelerate the learning and we can really make our students very much more effective. And then, you know, Kano developed concepts like Kazushi where we're trying to break our opponent's stance before we're throwing them. So is that not a valid transfer of information? Is that concept not a valid concept? Because it really reshaped how we look at grappling and combat forever. Just the idea of breaking someone's stance, breaking their center of gravity, and then attacking is the foundation of a lot of what we do in jiu-jitsu and in judo and in wrestling is all about breaking our opponent's stance. And to say that that is not, you know, that transferring that information is not an effective way of skill acquisition. I mean, I think it's going to be difficult to argue with that. But that being said, to have just purely kata training or just purely drilling, I think is it's also going to be very hard to argue that that's the best way to learn. And I feel that, like you said, with the Oma plot example, sometimes a position like that's like, you got to feel that. Like if I'm going to learn how to do a barambolo on someone, I need to drill that against someone who's not fighting back. Otherwise, I'm just not going to be able to go upside down and do that. Like I can remember when I first learned how to do a barambolo, it took me days to figure out how to actually even just go upside down and end up on the other side against someone who's doing nothing in resistance. But now you're going to say, okay, do a barambolo and this person's going to try and shut you down. And like your goal is to go upside down and end up on the other side. It's like, I mean, fuck, how are you going to do that against someone who doesn't want that to happen? Why not just feel the move first against non-resistance and look at that as like, I think it's a necessary part of growth. I think it's a necessary part. Maybe it's not the only thing. Like, should someone who is a master of barambolos, the Meow brothers, should they be drilling barambolos on each other without resistance? They probably don't need to at this point because they've literally done thousands of barambolos. But that being said, they probably still do. They probably still do barambolo each other back and forth against no resistance. 
I think where a lot of the eco guys kind of conflate certain drilling as non-effective is like the typical example of drilling for speed and for reps, like the Toriando passes, you know, one, two, three, four, Toriando's left and right. And the person on the bottom is literally just sitting there. Like if you showed me that kind of drilling, I would say you are literally wasting your time. There's no point in doing this type of training, maybe for kids at the like four-year-old level maybe that drill would be okay. Because if you show kids that, they can actually understand, okay, I need to walk around the legs, right? But that being said, you know, if you have adults and you're drilling Toriando passes and you're doing speed drill for reps, I mean, there's literally no reactions. So because there's no reactions, there's no actual feedback. I do believe that there is no transfer of skill, honestly, uh, aside from maybe you just working your movement and getting a bit of a sweat. But if you start getting the bottom player to start now recovering the foot position, and start facing you. And now the top person is starting to walk around the hip and the shoulder line and actually create angles that force the bottom player to react and force the bottom player to bring their knees to their chest. Now we're actually looking at real life situations. So just by adding, just by getting the bottom player to react and add slight resistance, the drill becomes numerously more effective than if the person on the bottom is just lying there. So we have to look at at drilling versus non-resistance in different lights for different situations. But at the end of the day, I think as soon as you can, as soon as your students understand what's going on, immediately adding resistance is necessary. Yeah, I would agree completely. There is the old saying that you get what you train for or you are what you train Basically, the way that you drill and the way that you train is going to impact the way that you practice in a live sparring scenario. Um, the problem with a lot of dead drilling activities or even warmups is that they recontextualize jujitsu movements in a way that isn't how they're actually supposed to work. So example, I know, Matt, you and I have talked about this many times over the years the old jujitsu drill where you shrimp down the mat. I am not a fan of that at all. And the reason why is because it recontextualizes shrimping and gives people the wrong idea about what it you're supposed to do and what good shrimping looks like. Yep. When you are trying to shrimp down the mat, ultimately, what is your goal? Your goal is to cover distance, right? That's what you're doing. You're not trying to get out of a position. You're not yep. trying to create space or off balance a person on top. Your goal is get from one end of the room to the other end of the room as fast as possible. And so what I find happens if you get people to do these drills, and I say this from experience because this is how I learned and it was wrong. What happens is people start to think that a good shrimp is this big, long, explosive movement where you're kind of trying to move your butt like three feet back. The issue is if you try to shrimp like that to actually escape a bad position, you probably aren't going to get out because the person on top is just going to adjust. And on top of that, by opening yourself up that wide, you create openings to let the person on top go to mount or knee on belly or something. So it took me a long time to recontextualize in my head what good shrimping looks like. It doesn't look like when you're doing that warm up. Good shrimping is actually more about kind of staying compact, getting a good angle and be, making yourself just a really, really shitty base for your opponent to try to sit on top of. It doesn't look like the way that you shrimp when you're trying to scoot your ass down the mat. So in that sense, I mean, I agree that dead drilling can be problematic because you're giving people the wrong goal, right? The goal of what they're trying to do is very different from what you would try to do in a real spar. However, I think there absolutely is a place for this kind of stuff because again, even if you can't transfer skill through that kind of drilling, you can at least transfer understanding. And I think that if someone 
is brand new. They are seeing a technique for the first time, maybe trying to just drop them into an ecological setting when they don't even know the goals is a real recipe for frustration. You talked earlier about how, you know, people, when you do full ecology all the time, it can be very taxing for your students. And there is a zone of proximal development. You want to challenge people, but if you overload them and make things too hard, you can actually make your training counterproductive. So there has to be a point where they feel like they can at least get something done. And by doing some dead drilling initially, just until they understand what the goal is, you know, what is it that we're trying to achieve here, that can be productive. Once someone understands what the move looks like and roughly how to get their body into that position, then I agree with you. It makes all the sense in the world to take it to a live environment as soon as possible after that. Yeah, you're absolutely right with your shrimping analogy. If you're drilling something and you don't understand the actual purpose of it, and you're totally right about how when you're learning the shrimp drill down the mats, your goal is to cover distance and get to the other edge of the mats before the person in front of you bumps into you. And you're absolutely right. That is so accurate when really the purpose of a shrimp or a hip escape is just to make enough room to make like a knee elbow connection and try to actually hit a full recovery to guard. And even that movement, the shrimp movement is often, not only is it taught improperly, but we don't put it into context how we would actually use it to escape a side control or how we would use it to escape a half guard pinning position. So it's really important that not only do we show the student how to do a knee elbow escape, but we explain the different situations and the different contexts as to why we might do that particular movement. I really think that there's a book that I read I've talked about before on the podcast is called Make It Stick. And they talk about a student in high school trying to regurgitate information for an exam as opposed to the student actually understanding the information. And when a student only tries to regurgitate something through memorization, then if you take that same question and rephrase it, or if you mix up the order of the questions, or you add different context to the questions, now the student can't regurgitate the same information because they've only remembered the answer based on problem to be solved. So there's no actual understanding of the problem. They're just regurgitating and memorizing. And I've been guilty of this too in high school. You know, oh, you need to know this for the exam, memorize it. And I'm like, okay, as long as I memorize this answer, I'll get it right and I'll get my a good score or whatever. Now you put it in a situation like jujitsu where there is no regurgitatable answer because everything is always different. It's always new and there's new variables. You really have to have an understanding as to what the problem is that needs to be solved. You cannot just regurgitate. And so I think instructors that are, uh, for lack of the better word, ineffective, they do show training where it's like, okay, let's drill this move and practice this arm bar. Okay, now let's roll. And it's like, yeah, there was no skill transfer there. You gave the student an arm bar that may or may not work in a particular situation, but you have not ingrained it in them and you have not given them context as to when to use it or predictable reactions or mechanics, all these different things. So that would be a situation where that said ineffective instructor is asking the student to regurgitate as opposed to actually gain it a deep understanding of the arm bar and when it's going to work. And so I think that, you know, obviously you don't want to be an instructor like that, but that being said, showing techniques and things like that, as long as the class is structured effectively, I think that that can have some validity. For example, let's say like a 360 arm bar where you throw up an arm bar from the guard and then you spin underneath your partner because they stack you. Like that's important to show someone that that is a solution when they stack you, in my opinion. That is an important solution to have if you're going to be throwing arm bars up from the guard and getting stacked. 
If you've never seen that before, how do you know that that is an answer? Could you come up with that answer on your own? Maybe. It's a possibility that you come up with your answer, that answer on your own. But if someone just takes two seconds to say, hey, when you get stacked, you can spin underneath, keep your wedges tight, and return them back to a top juji position. Now I know that that solution is on the other side, and I'm going to try to self-organize myself to get to that solution. And then pretty quickly, you can see that this will work in a live situation. So I think that there is total validity in gaining an understanding or gaining context over a particular technique by somebody just literally showing me something. And I say that from my own experience, my own personal experience learning and my own personal experience teaching. I see my students hit moves live under resistance almost right after I show them something. It's happened before. So is that not evidence that, you know, there is validity to that learning method as well? I think a lot of the ecological guys would say, oh no, because there's a hundred years of scientific data that shows that doesn't, you know, that the ecological method is the only way to transfer skill or whatever. And it's like, ah, man, these absolutist statements, I just, I can't really, I can't get behind them. Yeah. And I think, again, if you want to be productive with the ecological approach, the way that I think is best to think of it is rather than what you described there, which is to say, this is the way, this is the way it must be done and anything else is suboptimal. I think most people are going to be more productive if they look at what, ecological dynamics really are, understand what the findings are, right? And the findings are actually not that complicated. You know, you talked about make it stick. I would say for the vast majority of people, just read the book, How We Learn to Move by Dr. Rob Gray. It's a short book. It'll give you a pretty good understanding of what ecology is about. I mean, obviously you're not going to be an expert reading it, but it's going to kind of explain to you what the findings are from this thing and how that actually maps out to how athletes learn then just take those findings, right? Take those lessons and just figure out a way to integrate it into how you teach your students. It doesn't mean that you have to be fully Socratic and never show techniques or anything like that. It doesn't mean you need to go on Reddit or on podcasts and argue about whether something is purely ecological or not. You can just look at the the findings and figure out where it makes sense to start integrating them into your method. Uh, and I agree with you, Matt, that I think probably, I don't know even if there is a an optimal way of running a jiu-jitsu class because it's so variable depending on what kind of students you've got and what kind of problems they're having. I'd always be hesitant to say that there's one true way to do it. But I think if you look at ecological dynamics and you look at, you know, the benefits of running a class with constraints and making it difficult for people to retrieve information from their head, you know, making, adding a degree of effortful retrieval so they have to really think about things and they're not just on autopilot, adding a bit of variability so you can capitalize on that differential learning, right? Throw a, a little bit of randomness in there, little things like that. Those are just little tweaks that you can make that are ecological and you can apply them to your existing methods and then you don't have to throw everything out, right? So I, I think that, again, it's not an all or nothing thing. Um, and I would say that much like how the whole idea behind the ecological approach is we don't tell people exactly what to do. I would say that applies just as much when we're talking about the ecological approach itself. I think it's more productive to say, here are the findings and you can use these in whatever method makes the most sense for you. Yeah, to say that the ecological method is not valid or that it's not a good way to train, I think is, like I said earlier, if your school is not doing some sort of constraint-led training, you're definitely missing out on what is like really, really valuable or you're missing out on a huge portion of skill-building training. And to not do that at all is crazy. To only show moves is crazy. The first time that I actually saw the ecological approach, and again, 
ecological guys and Greg, they might be like, well, that's actually not ecological approach. I could totally hear them saying that. But when I first met Rob Bernacki and he came over, his one of the main things he talked about was what he called fuck your jujitsu, which is a target sparring game with constraints. Now, is it as nuanced as uh, some of these games that Greg is coming up with? No, like Greg is very specific with his uh, win conditions and things like that in the game. And he uses different language. But basically, Rob would come over and say, okay, like, let's do target sparring in the open guard. The top player is not allowed to grab the bottom player. Top player is literally just trying to base out and basically just stall out on top and not get swept. Bottom player is trying to sweep the top player, right? And so what you get is the top player zombie walking into the guard and basically just trying to base out. So the bottom player really has to work their Kazushi and their guard work and, the, and their sweeps and control, and the top player is working on their base. And then you could switch the constraints so that now let's say the top player is trying to pass or get chest to chest, and the bottom player is try, only allowed to frame. They're not allowed to grip. They're not allowed to sweep. They're only using guard retention uh, movements. And so like, I don't know how you could argue that this is not constraint-led training. This is This is training based around, it's gamified training based around particular constraints. It's not like you're just going target sparring, uh, seated guard versus standing guard, just sparring from the position. There is goals. There is things that each player is not allowed to do in order to increase the development of particular skills. So this was actually probably 10 years ago that Bernanke introduced fuck your jujitsu to me. And at the time I'd never seen anything like it. I was like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And to say that that's not ecological I think it covers all of the bases. Maybe it's not as specific as some of the games that Greg comes up with. I think Greg's very good at developing games to increase certain skills. I think Rob's approach is maybe a bit more vague, but that's not to say that it has to stay vague. The game could be changed in any way, but it is uh, constraint-led. And that's the first time that I was ever introduced to training like that. Yeah, I would say that that definitely qualifies to some extent as being ecologically driven. Now, again, someone who believes in a fully ecological approach might not say that that meets the standard. But again, it doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing, right? I don't think it's as simple as to say you either are ecological or you're not, because if you're thinking that way, that kind of gets you into the situation where you can dismiss any counter argument by just saying, well, that doesn't meet my definition of being ecological, right? And I I don't think that's truly useful because you can be partially ecological. I mean, a lot of the eco guys, for example, will say positional sparring is not ecological. I disagree with that quite strongly. If you're applying constraints, by definition, there is some ecological aspect. Now, you can argue that it's not a very good one and that it doesn't go far enough. Sure, that's fair. But saying, for example, that we are playing guard, you're on bottom, I'm on top, sweep or submit and reset when you're done. I mean, that's kind of an old school positional sparring approach. It doesn't maybe meet a high bar for being ecologically informed, but it is ecological to some extent. So I think when people say things like positional sparring is not ecological, that's not really true. It's just maybe not as ecological as it should be. But all the same, I think that the more you turn this into a conversation of, well, this is pure or it's not, the more you kind of lose the nuance. And the whole point of the ecological system is to understand the nuance of the human experience, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And let's say we're talking about a beginner's level class or what Greg calls a foundations class. And you can go on YouTube and check out some of these classes that Greg has started to put up. He's put up full like 20 minute videos and shown the games that he shows to his beginners. I think they're awesome videos. I really like Greg Souter's content. You know, if you took two white belts and you said, okay, I want the bottom player to be effective from the bottom and try to try to play guard and not get your guard passed. Okay, go. It's like, it's going to be a fucking mess. You're going to have the bottom guy getting his guard passed randomly. Not going to have any sense of direction. Top player is probably going to whip the legs by and just sort of fall on top. And then when they switch positions, the same thing will probably happen with no real direction and no real connections or anything. But one thing that Greg does that's really awesome is he's like, okay, bottom player, try to hook your two feet inside the top player's knees and gain as much contact as you can. Then if you can, start bringing your one hand to the ankle. And if you can, get two hands to the ankles and then just hold the position. And so now the bottom player has a goal. It's like, oh, okay, I'm going to make as much connection to the top player as I can. And what you see around the room is all of a sudden it starts to resemble jujitsu. It starts, even though these guys are beginners, it starts to resemble actual guard work because the bottom person has been given a task. And even though they might have like zero resistance, they're able to connect their feet inside and it gives them a sense of direction, takes them to a position that essentially looks like like I said, an open guard or the beginnings of what could be an Ashigurami entry. And then the next game, he'll, he'll say, okay, now your the job is keep the things the same, but now the top player is disconnecting the feet as much as they can. And the bottom player is now trying to put the top player on their butt or put their hands on the floor for as long as they can. And now it's like, oh shit, all of a sudden we've kind of like, we've given these athletes or students, whatever you want to call them, we've given them constraints that lead them down a path of self-organization and they actually can now play some variation of open guard. Like they know where to put their feet. They know how to make connections. The top person has a goal of disconnecting the guard and whatnot. And it starts to look like real jujitsu. So when you have a well-established game and it has really, really good goals for the player, I mean, it's just like you can totally accelerate the learning of someone. Right. But it doesn't necessarily give context. It doesn't say, okay, well, now we can go into this position. This is a technique. This is a sweep we can do from here. No, we're asking the athlete to sort of self organize that part of it. Right. But why not just say, okay, like here's a tripod sweep. Here's an entry into Ashigurami. Here is a double Kuichigari. This is, you know, like these are different things you can do from the guard. I just think that you kind of need both pieces. Maybe the best training lies somewhere in between both pieces. And to say that one or the other is the best, I'm not sold on. And again, probably going to get a lot of hate for that. But jujitsu is all about learning. And one thing, you know, even though I've been teaching for about 10 years, I've been training for about 15 years. I'm still a white belt. Like I'm still, I don't have the best way and I never will have the best way. And that's why as soon as I started hearing about this constraint led approach, I was like, oh man, I got to try this because I don't know, these Greg students are doing well in competition and I kind of need to know how this could affect my learning and my students learning. So I put us through it and I'm never afraid to admit that I don't know everything. And I'm pretty sure even by some people's standards, I don't have a full understanding of the ecological approach, but Again, all I can do is my best, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would argue that most people don't have a full understanding. In fact, I'd argue that nobody has a full understanding of the ecological approach, especially in jujitsu, where 
you know, we're dealing with a bunch of gym coaches, right? We're not talking about people who have researched the stuff in the lab for 10 years. <laughs> Most of us have just read a few books and are doing our best. And I think we need to keep that in mind. But yeah, you bring up a great example of where um, gamification and maybe making things more goal oriented rather than position oriented can be very good. And that is one of the downsides of a positional sparring approach. It's not that positional sparring is necessarily bad. It's that much like the shrimping down the mat example, it can give people an incorrect understanding of the goal, right? So close guard as an example, right? If you're doing positional sparring and, and you say, okay, your job person on bottom is to keep the person on top and close guard. I mean, you can incorrectly make people think that the goal of, of that kind of position is to cross your ankles and hold people there. But it's not really, right? The goal is to break someone's alignment so that you can advance your position or get a submission. Me holding you in close guard with my ankles crossed does not guarantee I'm in a good position, right? I could technically be in that position, but you could be fully postured up and about to pass me any second. Whereas the example you gave with Greg, where you're less focused on the position and more focused on getting to a mechanically advantageous situation, that I think is better, but that's just because you're being clearer about the goal. I don't think that's necessarily anything magic about being ecological or not. It's just rather than telling people your goal is to cross your ankles around the person, you're telling a person that your goal is to get into this advantageous position where their alignment is compromised, right? And I, I think that that actually isn't as far a leap from the old school way of doing things as people think. It's just you're being clearer about. I will say in a setting where you're teaching children, like teaching, so I have two age groups at my gym. First age group is five to nine years and the next age group is 10 to 14. And ecological approach for kids is fucking awesome because they learn through games. They learn through play and they learn through live resistance and they respond so well to that. I think I've talked about this on one of my episodes recently where, you know, if I go and show a technique, when you look at the room and you look at the wall as you're explaining it, you'll see the kids looking in all different directions. You know, if there's a loud noise outside, if there's someone walking by, they're just looking over there, like their mind wanders. Like kids are not they're not great at sitting and trying to take in a lot of information at once. One of my challenges as a gym owner and someone who teaches kids is how do I simplify this technique or this concept and transfer it to the kids where they can actually pay attention and they can utilize it on the mats. It's really challenging. And often a lot of the time you have to simplify what you're teaching. You can't just show all the little details because you'll lose their attention and so rather than just showing them techniques and then asking them to regurgitate it, a really good method is the ecological approach. So it's like, okay, kids, start with the single leg. It's a 30-second round. Your job is to hold the single leg for the entire round. If you lose it, just start again. And the other person is trying to clear their knee line and get the, out of the single leg. Okay, go. And like, there's no goofing around. The kids immediately go to work and start trying to single leg each other. And then the next round, you add the constraint of trying to put their hip or, or their hands on the floor. And you'll start to see, holy shit, like they're actually, this is, a, they're actually wrestling when they, maybe they don't even know what a single leg is, but now they're already understanding, okay, I, my job is to just hold this leg. I'm going to try and do what I can, right? But for me, I might look around the room and see kids making the same mistake. I might see a kid with their head completely hunched over. 
I might see a kid holding the leg with unlocked hands. I might see things where I feel like there's, I might see the single leg being executed where there's like no meaningful connection of the person's chest to the hips or anything like that. So I might go in and say, hey guys, here's a mistake that I, I'm not even going to use the word mistake, but here's some things that I think could make your single leg connections tighter, stay tighter, have good posture, lock your hands, right? And so on, try again. And now maybe they're like, okay, well, now I'm thinking about these things that Coach Matt told me. I'm going to try and keep my chest closer to my partner's hips. I'm going to try and keep my posture upright. And so how did I not just improve them through information transfer? You know what I mean? But again, the ecological approach for kids who have such short attention spans at such a young age is a great way to get them to train and to keep their focus through gamified training as opposed to regurgitation. I mean, for kids that age, most of my training comes with ecological training. And I think that that is the best way to get kids to a higher level in a short amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's amazing for kids. And I, w- I would say for adults too, right? It's not just kids who learn through play. Adults do as well. They're just kind of more reticent to get into that mindset sometimes. But I think gamification is an amazing strategy for adults as well. Um, But yeah, like you said, it is possible to maybe take it too far in one direction. I think there's always going to be that time where you need to give people a goal so that they know what you're trying to move towards. Um, Again, there's a difference between transferring skill and transferring understanding. And there is always going to be that time where as an instructor, you need to clarify for people what the objective is. Is. So, yeah, I think that, you know, there's going to be an approach in the middle somewhere that is probably best for most people. I think where people maybe just get into problems here is they get so tribalized onto one side of this or another. It's a totally unnecessary debate, right? It doesn't need to be a combative thing. It's not one side versus the other or black and white. These are just different approaches that have different strengths and weaknesses. And I mean, if you're a good coach, you're going to want to take the best ideas from everywhere. Yeah. And that's really what this is all about is taking what works, using what works and discarding what doesn't work. And I think, you know, to be tied to your old methods where it's it's only showing moves because that's how you've learned and that's how your instructor taught. It's like, that's not good either. You know, you have to be willing to change your approach. And I try and do that often whenever I see something that works, whether it's in competition or the highest level athletes are doing it or the new coach, there's a new coach who's doing this new method and it's getting a lot of good results. Like, I will try to adopt that and I'm not so stuck in my ways that this is the only way. I think once, you know, anyone who listens to the show is probably smart enough to know that that is not good, but being, but I think it hurts the ego sometimes because you have to look inward and think to yourself, wow, I've wasted a lot of time doing something that isn't effective. And that is really, really hard for some people to, to swallow. It's just like, if you have a career that you've dedicated you know, a decade or even two decades too. And now you you realize you don't want to do it and you want to do something completely different. That's a hard pill to swallow because you have to realize, hey, I, I wasted my time. You know what I mean? I've gone through this. You know, Joe Rogan has talked about how he felt this when he discovered Brazilian jiu-jitsu because he was this high level Taekwondo guy. And he's like, holy fuck, I dedicated a huge part of my life to something that is ineffective if someone knows Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And so- Rather than just doubling down and saying, well, fuck Brazilian jiu-jitsu, he decided to become competent in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I know Danaher has talked about the same thing when he discovered Brazilian jiu-jitsu as a nightclub bouncer, you know? And in life, you're going to always have these situations where you, you run into this fork in the road and you're like, it's going to test your ego where maybe you're thinking, 
actually, you know, I should try something else. Like this is not a direction that's going to be good for me if I continue down it. I should modify my approach. And if you can do that, I mean, you can learn and gain a lot, but you do have to make that shift and realize maybe something that you're doing is just not very effective. And I can hear the ecological approach guys right now. They're like, what you're doing is not effective. (laughs) I can just hear it now. I can't wait. Can't wait for the comments. Oh, it's great. Just so you know, the ecological approach is just, it's just constraint led target sparring, bro. <laughs> a little insider oh, there. Yeah. Well, I, I know that that is a great way to trigger Greg as you tell him it's just positional sparring or something. And man, that'll, I know. <laughs> that'll keep him busy for the rest of the day trying to come up with a response. Yeah. I think that, again, nuanced thinking here and just understanding look, these are just different tools and different findings about how the human body learns to move and not looking at this as some sort of you're right, they're wrong debate is going to be more productive and is going to encourage people to take what works. I think there's a lot of lessons from the ecological approach that people can bolt into their existing training. I don't think most gyms need to throw out everything and nor would I think we want to, because like you talked about, it is hard to do a fully ecological approach. You have to understand the goals of your students, right? Not everyone wants to come in and be an ADCC gold medalist, right? In fact, I would argue most people don't train jujitsu for that reason. So part of what you also have to do is meet people where they are and make sure that you're giving them an approach that even if it might technically on paper not be quote unquote optimal, it's the best thing to keep them engaged and get them to the point where now you can actually develop them further, right? You can't, for, for the same reason that, It's not going to be that helpful if as a white belt, you just roll in and get tuned by black belts every single day, right? It's also not helpful if you take someone who's totally new, I think, and just throw them in the shark tank here from an ecological standpoint. I think it does help to give some direction. Anyway, hopefully this conversation encourages people to think with a bit of nuance. Matt, if people want to talk shit at you or hear your conversations with Greg or anything like that, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, so you can check out the Essential Jiu-Jitsu podcast, obviously on Instagram, on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever all major podcasts are found. Um, Leave comments in the comments section, guys. It really does help the algorithm. If you want to support the show, check out the OnGuard Online Academy. That is right now the best way to to support the show. It's 10 bucks a month. You get access to my content plus... Uh, it really does uh, help with the podcast. And then, of course, if you have a kid, check out Zara Can Do Jiu-Jitsu. It's a, my kid's book about my daughter learning jiu-jitsu. It's awesome. So check that out. Very wholesome. It is pretty awesome. I'll put all of those links in the show notes just to make it easy for everyone. All of our stuff is at bjjmentalmodels.com. I think everyone knows that. But if you want to check out the back catalog of episodes, the newsletter, or our premium stuff where you can get more in-depth coaching conversations, direct coaching from our team, access to the community. All of that's at bjjmentalmodels.com as well. Seven-day free trial, so please do check it out. Throw the links to all of that stuff in the show notes. But Matt, thanks so much for coming to buy, man. Any closing profound thoughts you want to share? Not really. Maybe just in this whole debate about, you know, is drilling effective? What type of training is the most effective? Is ecological the best? Is that the best, etc.? I think no matter what kind of training you're doing in the gym, just make sure that it has a purpose. Don't do shrimps down the mat for no reason. Don't drill for reps just for no reason. If you're at a gym where it appears that your instructor is running you through drills for no reason and there's no sense of purpose, I mean, consider that maybe there's better ways to learn. And I'm not saying leave your gym. I know that that's a really difficult decision. I've had to do it before. 
But just consider that there are other teaching methods out there that could be perhaps more beneficial. And whether you're into drilling or not into drilling, make sure whatever you take into the training room, you take into the training room with a sense of purpose. You're trying to develop this skill. You're trying to solve this problem, et cetera. Don't just run through the movements and do like mindless drilling. Even if you're drilling, there should always be a purpose, whether it's for dealing with predictable reactions or refining mechanics or having precise positioning, whatever it is, there's always got to be some kind of a purpose that will elevate your game. Don't just go in and do mindless drilling, especially like, you know, these grappling dummies that you see that you can fill up with socks and stuff. Like I've never been a fan of these grappling dummies that just sit there because I'm like, well, what good is that going to do? That I can see is kind of pointless. Drilling an arm bar on a dummy that's just arms are out extended. That's not going to help you get better at arm bars. But now you have like an uke who's giving you some predictable reactions. All of a sudden, the training becomes way more effective. So go into the training room with a purpose, no matter what kind of training you're doing. Make sure there's always a reason why you're doing the things you're doing and uh, have some fun out there. Awesome. Well, thanks, bro. Talk to you soon. Talk to the listeners soon as well. Always appreciate people coming by and hanging out here. And we'll see you next week. Take care.